you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. A big thank you to our sponsor, Avalara. Avalara's award-winning tax automation solutions help accounting practitioners and businesses of all sizes simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates, automated return filing, and more. Listen for a special offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast, but instead of murderers, ours features employees who embezzle tens of thousands of dollars, but every now and then we get lucky and we also get a murderer. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. And I am one of America's most wanted. <laughs> Greg, it's good <laughs> most to be wanted, with you. Most wanted friends. That's oh. my friend, Caleb Newquist. That's sweet of you to say. To launch into it, here's a, here's a question I got to you to kind of set us yeah. up for today's today's case is, uh, ha- well, for, first off, Caleb, about how many jobs uh, have you had in your entire life so far? Uh, well, point of clarification here. Let's define job. Are we talking like employers? Uh, do volunteer jobs count? Or things and activities, some illegal, some possibly illegal, <laughs> that made me money? Like, I just need, oh, I need some, I need some parameters to work with here well i mean okay so that that totally sparks my interest i want to know about all of the possibly illegal ways that you've made money but but specifically (laughs) what i'm talking about is like employer like w2 generating jobs okay okay w2 generating jobs yeah yeah it's more you are an employee yeah so so probably probably close to 15 what about you how many I, I counted them up, and and if I'm remembering everything correctly, I've had 15, which seems like more than what I would have thought. Like, if I was going to guess, I would have said less than 10. But So, follow-up question, how yes. how, how many of those jobs that you have of your, of your about 15, because we're about the same, about 15 jobs yep. we both have, how many, do you remember any of those jobs running background checks on you, and how many do you, uh, do you remember having a background check on? I mean, I don't explicitly remember having background checks run, but I'm 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 almost certain that virtually every job I've had as an adult probably oh. involved a background check. I did oh, have this really? one. Yeah, probably. I mean, I just I, I mean, I I just don't know, you know. Yeah. Um I do huh. have the most memorable kind of related thing was I I did have to take two drug tests to be on site at a uh, large international uh, investment bank when I was working as a uh, big audit auditor. Um, uh-huh. uh, that's urine and hair for those wondering, the urine and hair. Okay. And uh, I think I may have gotten some low-level security clearance at some point. I don't know. I okay. did some government huh. did some government jobs, so I think I had some security clearance at some point, but that expires pretty quick. And, and I mean, they, right. they definitely do the full... Sure. Those kinds of things. But yeah, like explicitly, <laughs> I don't really remember. What about you? Uh, I, Lots of well, background checks? Uh, I think, and you, how, well, you, how would th- I remember? I don't know. How would you remember? I swear that you have to be informed if they, if an employer is running a background check on you. I don't think oh. they can just sneaky, sneaky run a background check on you. 
And part of my belief in that is you may not know this about your co-host, Greg Kite, but he hmm. is currently a, uh, a, a re- registered uh, certified mm-hmm. notary for the great state of Utah in the United ah. States of America. It is a it's a it's a uh, responsibility that's been delegated to me by the lieutenant governor of the state of Utah, which I mean, pretty pretty big time, pretty big. As you say, it's a big big responsibility being a notary. Yeah, and 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 no, I just I, had some, I, I just had some stuff notarized the other day. I have been a notary for three commission terms. And I, I just started my third commission term, and I had to specifically say I was okay with them running a background check on me, and oh. they wouldn't run the background check until I told them. However, they also, and I think this is also the case with employers, they have no, well, at least in Utah, they have no responsibility to inform you of the results of their background check. So, oh. so that that's my understanding of the dance is they have okay. to inform you that they're running one. You have to have some kind of consent for them to do that. But then after that, it's all just whatever. It's it's behind a curtain. I also I used to be a public school teacher in a past life, and I'm confident oh, yeah. that they ran a background check for me then because I had to get I had to get fingerprinted to be an, a school teacher. So I'm pretty sure they're not going to take my prints if they don't run a background check on me as well. That would seem a little strange. And what do they the need one firm, fin- why do they need the, wait, whoa, 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 hold, hold the phone there. Why do they need your fingerprints? Because school teachers are the most likely makers of meth. I don't know if you, oh. have you ever, have you ever watched a TV show? So I think it's to track down meth deal. That's, that's my guess. I don't, I don't, I didn't that's ask. Only after two, I, that was only after 2006 though, right? Yeah. So, about, it's, so if I, I read your comment correctly. You approximate about twenty percent of the jobs you've had had background checks. Does that sound right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd say it's yeah, probably around then twenty to thirty percent of of okay. them. So here's some interesting stats according to the ACFE. Who and and we you know we look at their stats a lot when we're doing this. They produce the yep. their biannual reports to the nations on occupational fraud, and they say that that's barely over fifty percent of all organizations run background checks on employees at all, which again is interesting because I'm thinking it was only about 20% of my employers who did it. And of those that did run background checks, 13% of them revealed some kind of red flag, but the organization went ahead and hired those people anyways. So some interesting stats there. That like one in eight, one in eight employer. So you're saying to me that, all the employers that run background checks yeah. and then find a red flag of those, approximately one in eight of them still yeah. hire the person. I'm just wondering <laughs> though, but I mean, let me ask your opinion about as someone, as someone so knowledgeable about, about fraud. I mean, that seems kind of, is that high? That seems high. One in eight, like 13, roughly 13%. That seems kind of high. Right. And again, one of the things that, that that does become difficult when we are really trying to dig into the ACFE stats is that they don't give a whole lot of like color commentary to them. And so when they say 13% of background checks revealed some kind of red flag, I don't necessarily mean that what that means is that someone had a minor in possession of alcohol charged right. 15 years prior. I do think that what that means... Well, actually, I know I, I do... Because when you do break this down, the 13%, they do they do disaggregate that, and they say that there's 4% of those people who were charged 
with a fraud-related crime and 9% of those people who were charged but not convicted of some Mm. fraud-related crime. So those are the kind of red flags that we're talking about and that that the organization still went ahead and hired those people regardless of that being in their background. There's definitely jobs that are that are, have less likelihood of committing fraud. I know that that accountants are the most is the most likely department mm-hmm. to commit fraud, but only 17% of frauds are committed by people who are in the accounting department. So that means there's still 83% of frauds that are committed by the janitors because those are the <laughs> only two departments that are in any organization is accounting and cleaning and maintenance. So I'm just saying there's a lot of janitors who are stealing a whole lot of mop heads and you got to be careful of that because that's going to affect your bottom line. Now, listener, when we come back from the break, we're going to tell you about a crazy $200,000-ish embezzlement scheme and the whole damn thing could have been prevented with a simple background check. Avalara helps businesses of all sizes get indirect tax compliance right. Our sales tax solutions help you manage sales and use tax complexities while lessening risk for your business and clients. Whether you are a small business or a global enterprise, Avalara can help you deliver tax compliance services confidently and efficiently. Over 30,000 organizations across the globe use Avalara's cloud-based compliance solutions to solve transaction tax compliance needs, including sales and use, VAT, and other indirect and direct taxes. In October 2021, IDC MarketScape named Avalara a leader in tax automation in three categories, small and mid-sized business, enterprise, and VAT. If you're considering tax automation, check out the independent IDC evaluations at omf.show slash Avalara. And later, we'll be telling you about a special offer for anyone who wants to learn more. In this episode, we're going to tell the story of James Rupert, a guy who stole $200,000 from not one, but two different volunteer firefighter organizations and some very vulnerable individuals as well. And there's a special place in hell for a guy who steals from first responders, but there's an even more special place in hell for this guy. And we're going to get to all the reasons why, but first we're going to unpack this story just a little bit. So Caleb, James Rupert, the the story starts actually where we're going to start the story is in Scotland County, North Carolina in the mid-1990s. Whoa, um, where, where is Scotland County, Greg? Do you have any idea uh, where Scotland County, North Carolina is? No one knows where Scotland County, North Carolina is because it's because it's that rural and uh, it ha- and the population density is near zero for all of Scotland County for the 2019 census. The whole county had less than 35,000 residents. Its biggest ah. city, its biggest city was Laurenburg. Uh, that had over 15,000 people in that. So that was, you know, close to half of the entire population of the whole county. Let me just point this out. And I've mentioned this on previous episodes, but I come from a small town. The county where I come from Mm -hmm. probably has a population density uh, smaller than this. 
Uh, really? I, someone, yeah, somebody can fact check me if they want. <laughs> Valley County, Nebraska, go ahead, knock yourselves out. But I love a small town. I love a small town fraud, Greg. That's what I'm trying to say. The, so, and and that's that's exactly what this is. And and I think the small, like the some of the dynamics in a small town actually helped help this guy perpetrate this fraud. James Rupert, he moved to Scotland County, uh, which again is in eastern North Carolina. Prior to that, he lived in the far west end of North Carolina, and he moved there in the mid-1990s. And this guy, so listen listen to this this character that we have. He, everybody loved this guy. He, he was a volunteer with the Stewartsville Volunteer Fire Department, one of the organizations that he ended up defrauding. He also was a volunteer at the Scotland County Firefighters Association. He volunteered for the American Red Cross and mm. for the Republican Party. Uh, mm. He would, This guy was, was just volunteer of volunteers. He also was the pastor of the Sand Hills Community Church, and he was a licensed insurance agent and and he he uh he created a company called American Insurance Marketing and so he did his insurance agent stuff through his own insurance business and one of the things that that I read in the different in, in the different research that I did on this case was that there was a lot of people in Scotland County who described James Rupert old Jimmy Rupert as being one of the nicest people you would ever meet that he mm. was. So he was, he was a beloved figure in this small, small community. Yeah. And again, so, I, I think that's one of the things that if you ingratiate yourself to a small community, you, you earn the people's trust and then you can fleece them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he is, he is definitely ingratiated. I mean, yeah, I don't, I mean, the, it, it, just based on the volunteer work and then having a business and then spending your Sundays doing that thing. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Seems, seems a little, seems a little uh, like a, seems like a busy body and to prey on some small town folk. <laughs> right. Well, and it's, and it's interesting too, because. Because you kind of wonder which, you know, what was the cart and what was the horse? Because I know sure. he's got his business of his insurance company. And I could see a lot of people going, hey, if I really want to make my insurance company really work, I need to network with people. Oh, is there a way that I could be a pastor of a church? That's a great way to network with people. And then I can sell more insurance doing that. Or was it the other way around where his main thing was pastoring? And because he was a pastor of this of this church, he was like, Hey, I'm going to be, you know, that's, that's just where his heart was. And I'm going to start volunteering for these organizations because I'm a giver is what I am. And the insurance thing is just to pay the bills so I can do, so I can do this other stuff that's more meaningful to me. It's all right. It's that, that's the sort of stuff that we don't know, which was the cart and which was the horse on that. But yeah, I see what you're saying because people, people are fascinated with, with stories of hypocrisy. Is what it is, yes. and I and I don't think it That's matters. It, it, it doesn't matter what the hypocrisy is. If you're wherever you're at, if you're being a hypocrite, that's always fascinating to people because you're saying one thing and you're doing another thing. Yeah, that it, it's a it's a double life, you know. Yeah, it's, and and again, in my research, I found there are entire there are many entire websites that are that are devoted to uh, to clergy that have committed crimes i think one of them was clergysgonewild.com so uh so yeah go check that out nice nice domain you nailed that one yeah 
It is. Somebody. It is. Well done. Uh, nice. So, uh, so here's here's what started happening. So, so he came into this community in the mid 1990s, and uh, and and he started. He immediately started doing all these uh, all this volunteer work. All that stuff was was almost right from the get go from when he he entered this community. But then in 2000, Rupert he opened a secret checking account in the name of the Stewartville Volunteer Fire Department, and he did so by forging the signatures of the fire department's treasurer and secretary uh, at the bank. So that was in, in the year 2000. And then it was a year later, when in November of 2001, when he convinced the board of directors of the Stewartville Volunteer Fire Department to move a $10,000 certificate of deposit from their normal bank to the new bank where he opened the secret account and, and and he had said that hey this new bank has better rates than the bank that we're at right now and and so this is this is one of the weird things about this it's very complex and i don't feel like james rupert was some kind of financial genius i think he was just making it up as he went along and, and he just sort of fell into a very complex system. So they transferred the the $10,000 CD to the new bank. And then he transferred it from that, from the CD into the secret account that he had opened earlier. And then from, from the beginning of 2002 to near the end of 2003, he transferred all of that money out of the secret account into his own personal accounts and other accounts that he controlled. Does that kind of make sense? I mean, it does, and yet it doesn't. You know, I mean, I okay. think that's like you say. It, there's something that sounds kind of needlessly complex about this particular type of fraud. Like when we, I mean, not to, we're not here to do a compare and a contrast and and say who's a good, who's good at fraud and who's not good at fraud. <laughs> but um, yeah, when you think about uh, the 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 Rita Crundwell approach, it was very simple. Like it was, and, yeah. and I mean, she yeah. did a lot of work to cover things up and like. All this, all these new accounts and all this transferring and things like it just feels a bit messy. And like you say, it, it kind of yeah. gives you the impression that he he was kind of just, I don't know, just winging it in a way. Yeah. So pretty weird. Yep. Pretty he faked his way. He, weird. He faked his way through this entire fraud and this entire <laughs> fraud that lasted. Well, which is funny because is he a good, is he a good fraud perp or is he a bad fraud perp? He's definitely a great fraud perpetrator because he made it onto the world's premier fraud podcast. Oh my fraud. So that is, that's it. That's the best indication. And he was able to carry this thing out for over eight years, which is a crazy long time because again, according to the ACFE in their most recent report to the nations, the median duration of a fraud was a mere 14 months. And and this guy mm. did eight years. So I'm going to say right. he stumbled and faked his way through it. And the complexity was one of the things that helped him get away with it. Even though I don't think he knew what he was doing, I think that his needless complexity was part of what helped hide the fraud. I also believe that, like we said before, the small town vibe and the fact that this guy was yep. out volunteering everywhere was how he could get away with forging the signatures of the people on the board of directors for the fire department. Cause you go to right. a bank, you're the pastor of the church. You say, Hey, here's the thing. I got the signatures from the people and they go right on pastor Rupert. We'll open that account right away. And that's, yeah. and I think that's how that happened. Greg, uh, I know that he stole our Reverend Rupert 
stole over 200k so and yeah it started off with about sounds like it started off with 10 grand so what else yeah Ten, what, 10, else, what else that, what, what's and, some and of the I, other stealing he did I'll get to that. And first off, okay. I realized that was actually more than $10,000 because it was a CD plus the interest that it accrued on the CD. So ah. it ended up being closer to $12,000 when he got his hands on it and got it out of there. Then the, ne- the next step in this whole thing was in mid-2003, He because ex- again, the guy's, he's, he's an insurance salesman. He accepted $7,500 from the Scotland Firefighters Association to invest in an annuity. And instead of investing it in the annuity, he just said he he took the money and didn't do anything with it at all. But one of the things that he would do <laughs> is he would just create fake statements. And and you know, and this is this is very common for fraudsters, is that you know, he's in a position of authority in a fiduciary role with the organization that he's defrauding. And so when it's time to say, and when they go, hey. Hey, uh, hey, Jimmy, how's that? Uh, how's that annuity doing? And he goes, "It's doing great. Let me get you uh, your your statement." And then they just go make up a statement on Word and print it out and hand it in. And go here, you go, and they go, "Awesome, that looks like it's doing great for us." So then, so that was the next seventy five hundred bucks. It starts getting bigger than that in October uh, two thousand three. So later in two thousand three, he at this point had become the captain of the Stewartsville Volunteer Fire Department, uh, and the fire department received one hundred and sixty three thousand dollars worth of grant money from FEMA to purchase firefighting equipment, and thirty eight thousand dollars of that as the captain of the Stewartsville Volunteer Fire Department, he decided to steal. So he just, he uh, he showed some restraint, I think. Yeah. Well, and again, he kind of did because I I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm going to just blow my wad with this guy right now. But when he was on trial, he said that he never intended to steal anything ever. He justified the entire fraud by saying he intended to take the money temporarily and to pay it all back in full. So I think that's why he didn't take the whole $163,000. He just took Mm. the 38,000. I think that's why it took him over a year and a half to bleed out the 10, the first $10,000 that he stole from the fire department, because I don't, I think it was like, ah, I can, you know, it's, it's there. I think I can, I think I can pull this out, but I'm going to put it back in as soon as I, you know, as soon as I, make the money back or I, that I think that part of his plan again I don't think he was a smart dude I don't think he was a financial genius yeah it's weird that I think you know I think in a lot of frauds the idea that you you hear this explanation all the time right where people are just like well it was I wasn't I wasn't really stealing it I was just borrowing it right and I had fully intended it intended it to pay, pay it back but the thing mm-hmm. is in order to pay the money back, that either involves uh, an unexpected inheritance, robbing a bank, or a, a money bag falling from the sky and landing on your fucking head. Like I just don't right. know. Like the logic, <laughs> the people, the, how the people think it through. There's like, well, eventually right. the seventy five thousand right. will show up on my doorstep, and then right. I'll make good on it all. And yeah, it just doesn't. I don't know. Um, it's a it's a very it's a very weird. A phenomenon in the uh, right. in the fraud logic 
Right. Well, and it's and I think it's one of those things where these people are trying to because again, you know, if if you look at a lot of the just the research on ethics is what people are trying to do when they make unethical decisions, rationalizing those unethical decisions is they're trying to create a narrative whereby they're still a good guy. And yeah. so his narrative was I'm not stealing this. I just need it right now to get me out of a pinch, but I'm going to pay this back. And then you, and then you can continue the fantasy and I could see, you know, and again, this is 100% speculation, but I could see this with him owning his own business as he could say, this time I just took out I just borrowed $38,000 from a FEMA grant and then you go, okay, how many annuities do I not need to sell to get a commission to get $38,000 back? Oh, it's this many. Oh, I think I can swing that. And I then you go, that. okay. And then you go, cool. And then you, you, you don't ever, you don't ever think about it again. You, Cause you sell you, zero annuities. You sell sold zero. zero. <laughs> exactly. But he could have, he could have <laughs> sold could've. more. He yeah, could've. exactly. So then, All so right. then just a, just to burn through some of these those other things, in 2006, he stole another $7,700 from the, from the fire department. In 2007, at the, which at this point, he was the president. So he at one point, he was the chief of the volunteer fire department. Now he is the president of the Firefighters Association, where he stole $13,000 from the association. And then- Just, in, failing, in, just failing upward. I love it. Just, yeah, just right, failing right. upward. Right, ex- exactly. He's moving moving on up as he commits these crimes. And then in 2007, and this was very interesting, in 2007 he stepped down as the treasurer of the volunteer fire department. So he was the chief. Mm-hmm. He probably was doing both duties where he was the chief and the treasurer. Um they didn't they, nobody ever really broke down the timeline of when he had what hat on for this organization. But again, small town volunteer department chances are he wore multiple hats at any given time but before he stepped down as the treasurer which i think that's interesting period that he would step down because i would think with what he was doing he would say i'll be damned before i stop volunteering as the treasurer of this volunteer fire department to just make sure nobody ever caught him but what he did instead and again this seems this seems smart is that he opened a new not secret checking account at the same bank where he had the secret checking account, he transferred $15,000 to the new account and he totally closed the old account, which prevented the new treasurer from seeing any of the fraudulent bank account history that it had there. Because again, he was the only person who was able to get, who, who was on the, the secret account. That's how he was able to transition out of treasure and not be immediately discovered for what he did. But then... The very what the very next year the guy makes the dumbest mistake that he's ever <laughs> that he's ever done where he they they get another grant to uh, to go buy some equipment and they and I guess they go and actually do purchase some equipment and then right after that he goes to the to the treasurer of the fire department who succeeded him and he he goes and says hey uh, we just bought all this equipment. I need a check from you for uh, $26,121 because that equipment that we bought, I, I bought it on just out of my business's checking account. So I just need a, I just need a quick reimbursement from the department, uh, you know, you're, and you're welcome that I did that <laughs> for you. So, but again, this guy was, he was, he was beloved and he was trusted. And so the new treasurer was like, well, that's, 
that's a really like that's that's bad business to do bad business yeah. for the fire department bad business for your insurance company that's sloppy but here but here you go here's your check for 26,121 go ahead and and take that but while you go to the bank and cash that check and then immediately spend it on scratchers uh while you're doing that I'm going to go I'm just going to do a little digging and at that point they were like oh shit this guy has stolen lots of lots of money from us over the years and at that time the new assistant fire chief for the volunteer fire department had learned that Jimmy Rupert that his business phone had been disconnected and that he just it, you know which which is kind of like going oh something's going bad with his business because his business phone if you if you have a business you kind of need a phone for that business that's sort of you know a basic office expense hopefully, you got to have hopefully hopefully and, people and, can call you so they can give you money yeah yeah, in a exactly. legitimate way. And so I I do think that's a red flag that maybe Jimmy Rupert's business isn't going awesome is if the business phone is disconnected. And then they also just heard heard tell in their small town that that Rupert was in serious debt, which he absolutely was. And so the assistant chief went to the bank. He asked for all of the bank, all of the fire department's bank records, and that's when that's when he was able to become apprised even of the secret bank account. Because remember, that bank account was opened in the name of the fire department, even though Rupert was the only guy who had, had authority over it. So they gave them the records at that point, and then they were able to see all the checks that had written. That Rupert had written, and he had written, and the money he took out, it wasn't. He didn't just send it, give it to himself personally. Some of it went to his business. Some of it went to other accounts that he controlled. Some of it went to his wife, who then shortly after this became his ex-wife, and that's uh, that's sort of the uh, how this story unfolded. I mean, going back to to just how how everybody loves a good hypocrisy story. One of the things yes. that's awesome about this that came out is that of the you know, and again, the, the the tallies are different for how much money this guy stole. And part of it is because how much did he allege to steal? At one point, he was accused of char- of stealing over three hundred thousand dollars initially, and mm-hmm. then most of the banner headlines for the story say that he stole. $200,000. But then his restitution that he was ordered to pay was about in the order of $140,000. So so none of that stuff quite lines up and and it's very difficult to find an accounting that ties out exactly what his restitution was for and how that ties out to the monies that he pulled out from this. But one of the things that came to light during this guy's trial is that of the ill-gotten gains that Jim Rupert got he did spend $2,600 of that stolen money to pay for divinity school tuition because he's a pastor and you got to keep you got to keep your uh you know your bible school chops uh sharp because those sermons aren't going to preach themselves. Yeah, thou shalt not steal. I'm sure it was the, you know, I think <laughs> right that was that was I the mean, next semester after this. Right, one. He right, quite right. You know, they, got, yeah. they, they got to the Ten Commandments. That he 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 skipped that semester where they talked about the Ten Commandments. I guess. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what year this this divinity school tuition came to, but twenty six hundred dollars doesn't seem like a lot of money to be learning about like God. Yeah, to, to, be, that's, to be to be become a man of the cloth. Yeah, I just, that's definitely in state divinity school tuition. <laughs> but that's not the crazy part. Do you want to know the? Cool, oh, there's, there's a crazy part. 
there's a bombshell that also came up during this during this investigation. The crazy part is this is that what came out during this trial is that Jim Rupert not only stole all this money from fire departments, but from 1979 to 1994, James Rupert served a prison sentence for the shooting murders of his grandparents who raised him from childhood, from infancy. This dude, did you hear that? This dude was a convicted murderer, not just for murdering, like, you know, like someone who who did him wrong. He murdered his grandparents who raised him from infancy after his father died in a car accident. That's man. That's the Jim Rupert that these guys put in charge of their money and of their fire department. Did you know that 52% of accounting practitioners, large and small, still rely on spreadsheets and manual processes for sales tax compliance? Why not move your accounting practice to the 21st century using Avalara for Accountants? The Avalara for Accountants compliance automation platform helps accounting service providers grow their client base with sales tax prep and filing, business license management, and more. Avalara Managed Returns for Accountants was recognized as a best product in 2021 through CPA Practice Advisors Technology Innovation Awards. Want to learn more? Later, we will tell you about a special offer. All right, so so two things come to mind. Some two things come to mind. Number one, I thought there was going to be a dram- dramatic pause there, and then number two, maybe his grandparents were jerks. I know it doesn't like. I had very sweet grandparents. I don't know about you, Greg. <laughs> oh my my grandparents were very sweet people, and, and, and so, but I had some friends. <laughs> Those grandparents had- who got murdered had it coming. Look, we're going to get into it. And so, but, yeah. you know, it's crazy it's crazy that someone would kill their grandparents. It's but it's it's not they could have had balls. it coming. They could have had they it could, coming. Yeah, well, I'm going to say they didn't. Just going okay. out on a limb saying that they didn't and that James Rupert was a bad person. That's where I'm okay. that's go, where I'm going go, with this. So, so here's, so here's go, the go here's on. the story. Here's the story. If you'd like to read it for you, for, for yourself, there's a link to an article in the show notes. But what they said is that th- so Jim Rupert was 17 years old. He was living with his grandparents because they were raising him. And sometime in the wee hours of the morning, uh, there's some construction workers who are working right near his grandparents' house, and they see Grandpa Rupert running out of the house in his bathrobe. They see a, a, a Jim Rupert running out behind him with a shotgun grandpa rupert turns around to be to to be like don't you shoot me with that shotgun and at that point jim rupert shoots him with the shotgun is what he does and then he immediately he goes he chucks the shotgun and he chucks a a 22 pistol into a lake because that's what murderers do and then he goes to a neighbor's house and goes oh my gosh the craziest somebody i got it the craziest thing just happened somebody shot my grandparents failing to say that it was him that shot his grandparents the police came to the neighbor's house, and obviously, as police do, they initially question him right there, where he admits to the murder of his grandparents, and they said, why did you shoot your grandparents? And he said, 
that they uh, were too strict and they were making him go back to school and he hated school because apparently they weren't sending him to divinity school. And Rupert told an off well, he told them about the the guns in the pond and they and so the police went to the pond, they found the rifle, they found the 22 and and then and this is where it gets gets a little heavy. Uh, if it wasn't, if murder of grandparents wasn't already heavy, but it, they they did find later that the grandpa was shot twice with the rifle, and that the grandma had been shot five times with the pistol. So uh, yikes! Yeah, Grizzly. so he so that was in that all happened in 1978 when he was 17. And apparently the jury, I mean, it was just open and closed. And and he changed his story during the case where he said he didn't do it. And he had like amnesia and like he just totally couldn't remember anything until all of a sudden he started remembering that he had guns in his hands. And it's like, okay, that doesn't help you convince people you didn't murder people. If you're like, I can't remember anything. But when I came to, I had guns in my hand and murder in my eyes. And that's, that's his defense. I don't know how that works. The, the jury convict like they deliberated for about three seconds. And we're like, yeah, you're guilty. And you go, Oh, and he was given two life sentences for the murders Oof. of his grandparents. Yeah. That was the original sentence, but then he appealed it. And on appeal, they were like, oh, you're only 17. You're just a kid. We can't give you a double life sentence because you, you're just 17. And everybody knows 17-year-olds are babies. And so they changed it to a 15-year sentence for shooting both of his grandparents. So that's Ooh. that's the James Rupert that we're dealing with right here. And again, and that's that leads back to the entire conversation we had about background checks. I'm going to say... If these organizations did a background check on James Rupert, who who ostensibly moved from Western North Carolina, where he murdered his grandparents, to Eastern North Carolina, where nobody knew that he murdered his grandparents. That's why he moved, was to start a, a, on a clean slate and to be like under the radar with what he had done that was so heinous. And so he started a new, new thing over here. I'm going to say if the church or if the volunteer fire department or the firefighters association of any of them had done a background check on him and found out that he was a convicted murderer of his grandparents, they probably would have found another candidate for all of those positions. Your hot take on that Caleb Newquist. Well, he clearly didn't have Atticus Finch as an attorney, but barring that, <laughs> if you, if you run an organization and you, and you run a background check on someone, and they did 15 years for murder, <laughs> even if you are a very forgiving and understanding person, you probably have some questions, you know? Yeah. There'd be a, yeah. There'd be some, there'd be a discussion at least. Yeah. Right? Maybe. Yeah. Probably. I think so. Yeah. And they're, so it's uh, yeah. not unreasonable. I'm not were... saying, I'm not saying it's an unreasonable thing. And I'm not saying, and, 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 and you're saying they would probably go with somebody else. But also, if this person, he gets into a community and he's very affable and he's like, like you say, he's ingratiating himself. Yeah. I think even if the, the, it had come up after the fact, there's a lot of speculation going on here. So I don't know if this is yeah. what we should be doing, yeah. but, but you yeah. can say, no, you no, can, no, you we can, should, uh, no, a we small ab town. We absolutely. This is our it, podcast. We get to speculate right. ad nauseum. Okay. Spe okay. But, but I but do, but a, I like the yeah. disclaimer. This is all, well, yeah. this is all us on our brains, but you have to, yeah, this is all in our brains. But what I'm saying is, 
if a guy like that, even if it were to come to light, right? Uh-huh. You think in a small town where he's really become part of the community, people are just like, well, shucks, Jim, you didn't tell us about murdering your grandparents. He's like, <laughs> yeah. well, can you blame me? And people are like, nope, seems pretty understandable. You'd want to get a fresh start, et cetera, et cetera. And he could carry on with, with the financial shenanigans and no one would be to the wiser. I guess what I'm saying is, I think I we end know. up in. I, this, I think we end up in the same place, right? You mean with him, if he if he had been uh, transparent with that, or yes. if the background check had brought that up, that people would have been like, oh, I guess I guess people murder grandparents from time to time, <laughs> and so you're good. Go ahead and continue to run our fire department and our church in our in our small family values rural community. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe I mean, I'm come on, who hasn't murdered maybe. a grandparent? We all have four of them. <laughs> maybe I'm way off base here, but I, it's, it I is, think it's, I'm confident. What? I'm confident that he would have been shit canned immediately if that came to light after the fact, and if that was known before he was given any of these positions. There's no way anyone would have given him any job except possibly a janitor at the Sand Hills Community Church, and that would be it. And this is my stereotype of, of small rural town America. They're going to say, oh, we can't have a murderer as our pastor or as our fire department chief. So that would have shut it down. I could see that as a possibility. <laughs> One, what I'm wondering is, though, what I'm wondering while, while we are kind of speculating and arm, armchair psychoanalyzing here um, <laughs> right what's interesting and there isn't a lot maybe you, you you found it in your research but like there's no indication that that rupert was it's not clear as to the motive like money troubles yes but there right. seems to be even like a psychological thing going on here where he like because and i don't think we mentioned it but you, you but he also stole money from his mother-in-law. He stole money from a widow. Right. He stole yeah. a couple's life savings. He, yeah. uh, his, his friend who bailed him out. Yeah. He forged one of his friends who bailed him out. He right. forged the guy's check. We, so like, we got, just, we got to, we got to tell that story real quick before we, right. before we get into that. So real quick, more of the timeline. Uh, Rupert was arrested in September 2009. He was indicted in November 2011. There was, you know, a bond that he could, he could, uh, you know, do a bail bond to get released and, and wait for his court hearing in March of 2015. He pleaded guilty to 17 felonies and was sentenced. But after yeah. his arrest, he has this friend, Randy Blackburn, who bonded him out of jail. And this friend of his, Randy, was he was the guy you were talking about who was like, oh, you know, he looked past Rupert's uh, past indiscretions and he was like, I'm going to help you because you're a friend. And so not only did Blackburn bail him out of jail, he also allowed Rupert to live with him while he was awaiting his trial and while he was this persona non grata in the community. And, and this guy, like everyone else, was just pissed and wanted to, to to string the guy up. But this guy was the only one who, who stood by him through this whole thing. But Rupert, while he was living in, in 
uh, Randy Blackburn's house. He stole one of Randy Blackburn's checks and issued it to himself and forged Blackburn's signature to take the money. Obviously, at which point Randy was like, what the hell are you doing? You son of a bitch kicked him out of his house. And then he lost his last friend in Scotland County, North Carolina. So, yeah. So, so something is like, so this, all this indicates to me is that it's almost like he couldn't help himself. Like the one person who is really walking in the path of Christ here, Reverend, Uh is your pal Randy. Yeah. Right. Is, yeah. No, a- right. Absolutely. Yeah. I hear like what he's Amen. the one. Amen. Brother Newquist. I went to plenty of Sunday school. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is the point is this person who is helping his friend in yeah. a time of need and his friend completely betrays him. And yeah. It's like <laughs> there seems to be an uncontrollable urge that he cannot help himself from Right. If, if the opportunity presents himself for stealing in this case, uh-huh. he right. was going to steal. And His, that that's yeah. the part that I have. That's the part that I just like, can't get my head around is like, right. There, it, it, it's so, it's so it kind of brazen and sloppy that it just doesn't, it kind of defies comprehension. And so, yeah, in any case, it's a, uh, it's a sad story. Also is what I'm trying to say. It's easy. It, it's it easy is. to be ma- it's easy to be mad at people, but also you're just like, what is going on? You know? Right. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I hear you. You know, and it and you kind of wonder if it's if it's kind of like a kleptomania sort of situation where the guy, if there's money, he's gonna steal it. So yeah, I hundred percent right. hear what you're saying. Absolutely. So just so so again, just to just to kind of give some of the last little details about this fraud. It is basically just the sentencing. So, hmm. like, like I said, he 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 pleaded guilty to seventeen felonies, which interestingly enough, the maximum sentence for all of those seventeen felonies was a little over forty-one years in prison. But Rupert was sentenced to four years and ten months in prison, plus six months of house arrest. And when the sentencing came out, he had already he'd already been in jail for forty months. So he oh, only had eight time 18 served. months less. Yeah, because time already <laughs> served. So he only had 18 yep. months after he was actually sentenced, plus those six months of house service. Plus he was on probation until he because he also was uh was required to pay back a hundred and forty thousand dollars of restitution. Funny thing was uh, so so all of these are well over multiple thousands of dollars but the court also uh demanded that he pay back Randy Blackburn 885 dollars dollars so the friend the friend that he stole the money from while he was sleeping on his couch because again going back to what we said before initially he was arrested on the suspicion of stealing over three hundred thousand dollars then it was found that he stole over two hundred thousand dollars from you know from these uh four individuals plus the two organizations but then the restitution he was required to repay was only one hundred and forty one thousand dollars so that again i I, I couldn't find anything that could reconcile those numbers for me, but those are the numbers that are out there is that he was required to pay much less restitution specifically to the fire department and to the firefighters association than what it was determined that he stole from them. So that's weird to me as well. And those are all the beats of the story that I've got. Caleb, was there anything else that you found that you'd like to add to the case before we uh, segue into our final segment of this show 
You know, as far as victim goes, the only thing he was missing was orphans, I think. <laughs> yeah. The widows. Right? He's got the first responders. Yeah. Seniors life yeah. savings. No. <clears throat> murdering no his orphans. grandparents. Yeah, yeah, murdering his grandparents, just no orphans. So yeah. I mean he, yeah. he almost he was close to the superfecta or like, you know, the, the <laughs> right the whatever. But um yeah, right. no orphans. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Weird. That's a weird one, Greg. It's a, a weird, weird one. one. Yep. Weird one. But I say as weird as it is, and if you think about it too hard, it's a super bummer. But if you keep it light and keep it at a at a distance, it's it's a very entertaining story of a weirdo that that stole a lot of money and did it in some real high you know, highfalutin in some you know he did it he, he did it in a very James Rupert kind of way. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it like that. Do your clients need help with sales tax automation? Well, Avalara can help your accounting practice start or grow an existing tax compliance practice while you gain efficiencies and reduce risk for you and for your clients. Learn more about Avalara for accountants and you'll get a free gift. All you have to do is meet with an expert to explore how Avalara can help your accounting practice grow and you'll receive a $50 gift card. Contact Avalara at accountants at avalara.com and mention the code fraud. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this fraud and we're going to kind of line it up with some of the research that has been done on frauds and on fraudsters. And we're going to kind of see how this fraud compares to what we would expect from frauds. And we're just going to unpack it a little bit to see uh, if there are any lessons to be learned, yeah. and did, if there are, what anything? those lessons might be. Right. What'd we right. learn? What'd we learn? And maybe maybe the answer's no. Maybe Nothing. we didn't learn a Nothing. damn thing today. But here's some here's some points of interest, Caleb, that, that I found. Shoot. One of the things, one of one of the things that's endlessly fascinating for me is uh red flag behaviors that the that fraudsters exhibit that like weren't picked up on that maybe could have tipped people off earlier to the fact that, hey, we need to at least keep a better eye on this person. And again, the ACFE, they put out a, a, a well, what they consider a, a, an exhaustive list of red flags. The main red flag that we see is, is what the new assistant fire chief heard as a rumor around town was that James Rupert had lots and lots of debt, that he was in financial difficulty. And that is very definitely one of the red flags that the ACFE lists. As, as a matter of fact, it is what they list as the second most common red flag for fraud and that 26% of all fraudsters exhibit the red flag of being in financial problem, having lots of debt, which makes makes it pretty, pretty clear that that, I mean, it, it's clear why that's a red flag. And it makes sense that a lots of fraudsters are in that situation. I think what's weird is that is there it isn't the the reporting that we read and the research that we did that there isn't more to it than that. It, yeah, it it just isn't like in other in other you know in other stuff that we've talked about in other webinars and other podcasts. There's just there's there's just loads of red flags, and in this case. There's just not, but I guess, I guess then that just brings up the question. I guess that raises the question for me, Greg, is that there's plenty of fraud that occurs where there's no red flags, right? 
Right. Uh, well, and interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like that is one of the most interesting parts of the red flag research that um, the ACFE does. So, Caleb, you're right. That's weird. I find it weird that there's a lot of fraudsters that, again, according to the ACFE, they don't exhibit any of the red flags that they list because one of the red flags is ir- is this exactly, quote, irritability, suspiciousness, or defensiveness. And I right. go, find me anyone who's not irritable, suspicious, or defensive, and I am going to call bullshit because yeah. we are we are all that. So. I think that's the thing too. I think that's the thing too that I, I I think the people at the ACFE do fine work, and I the report of the nations is always fascinating. But yeah. there is something kind of general and very non-specific about some of these things, and we've talked about these in other in other discussions. But like you know, uh, a Wheeler dealer type. I'm like. Yeah. You know how many fucking yeah. wheeler dealer types I know more than I care to fucking think about. Okay. <laughs> right. Like, and especially right. like in CEO, it's like, oh, he was a d- demanding, demanding CEOs or, uh, or, uh, uh, uh that, is a, that is a common, that is a common, uh, trait of a fresher. Like, are you kidding me? They're all fucking yeah. demanding. Like, and so right. that's right. the thing is like so much of it is circumstances and context. And, and, and maybe yeah. this is all obvious, but to me, it is. You know, things like, like you say, financial difficulty, the pressure that a person is under, what is it? it it's it's kind of like minority report, right? If you turn the fraud triangle into some art- artificial intelligence, people that are experiencing uh, pressure and oh. have rationalization and have opportunity. Yeah. I mean, would that fucking fraud triangle robot be arresting people left and right? Probably. It would be. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, and if it just, was looking. Yeah. If it's looking for the red flag, because again, like you're saying, all of this stuff, because I believe how they how they compile the data is they go to their they go to their members and they say, you know, how many how many frauds, you know, they just ask them for a breakdown of the frauds that they that they investigated in that particular time period. And then they ask them for those frauds, what red flags were exhibited. And I'm sure a lot of the investigators go, I didn't really know who the fraudster was. I didn't get into their personal life. So none. Right. And that's right. that, and they just leave it at that. So, but then also, there's lots of subjectivity to that too, because what does financial difficulties mean? Does that mean right. that you, you know, do, 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 you know, do I do I have a financial difficulty because I I just went to Hawaii last week and I wasn't able to take a helicopter ride? Was that because was that my financial difficulty in Hawaii? Right. I would like to say yes, it was. Uh, so. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a but lot of of on the other end of uh, on the other end of that spectrum, and maybe I've, maybe I'm belaboring the point at this point. But when if, if if financial difficulty means well, he's living paycheck to paycheck, it's like all right, well you've narrowed down the suspect list to roughly 250 million people in the country. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, and that's so I, th- I, that's that's these exactly are the things where, where I'm just like. Eh. You know, you can right. you can say financial difficulty, but it it it, right. it means something, but it also means very right. little. 
Well, and just to say that, flip it around. So that means that you know, twenty six percent of the of fraudsters uh, are are having financial difficulties. That means that seventy four percent are are independently wealthy. Is that <laughs> right? What, is, is that what, <laughs> what that, does means? that mean? So that's yeah. I you can know. flip all of those around. So um, the only other red flag that I was able to find that uh, James Rupert exhibited was past legal problems because clearly he mm. had past legal problems. And five percent of fraudsters exhibit the red flag of having had past legal problems. And again, to me, that was the crux of this entire case. If they knew about his past legal problems, they would have weeded him out and he would have never had the opportunity to to commit this fraud in the first place. Perhaps. 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 Now, the next thing I want to do real quick is is I just want to go through the fraud triangle and just to just yeah. to identify the different things that that were there For, and the first the first part of the fraud triangle uh, and I think I think the most important part of the fraud triangle is the opportunity part because if there is no opportunity to commit fraud then fraud will not be committed which kind of goes back to your to what you were saying earlier if someone does have a criminal record maybe hire them in positions where there isn't opportunity to commit fraud or where it's 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 so minimal that it's immaterial and so the when i look at opportunity the way that i unpack that as i say so what what internal controls were either missing or could be overridden by this person and when i look at this fraud i say all the internal controls were missing and anything that was there clearly could have been overridden. Are, are you with me on that? There, there's no separation of duties. I didn't find any, yeah. any idea that there was internal audits or external audits that were created. And, and I'm assuming that there's not going to be because either an internal audit or an external audit would have immediately surfaced the fact that this guy was siphoning money out of these organizations. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on this. I mean, it's, it's a common scenario where you're in a forget about small town. We're just talking about a small organization and we're talking about a volunteer fire department. We're yeah. talking about a firefighters right. association. You know, they may not even have any full-time employees. Right. Right. And right. The other thing that are, that kind of happens in these small nonprofits is like, no one wants to be responsible for the money. So when somebody <laughs> steps up to be responsible for the money, everybody's like, whoo, Somebody's responsible thank for goodness. the money. Yeah. Thank yeah. God somebody's responsible for the money. And so it just, it, those circumstances put these small nonprofits and even, and, and small businesses, as we've talked before, yeah. small organizations yeah. are just at a, at a, at a much higher risk just because they don't, there's not enough people that have the sophistication or the knowledge or even the willingness to do the jobs. And, um, yep. I think one thing that one point that you've made on several occasions is it doesn't have to be complicated. And so I, I'm just curious in your mind, what's oh. a simple, what's a simple, what, what's a simple control that would have, uh, I, I know, I, I think I know the answer to this, but what's a simple control that could have been impl- implemented in this situation? I mean, the, the, to me, the, the, the real, the basics of internal controls is the separation of duties. Is that what yeah. you thought I was going to say? Yeah. No. Yeah. Cause if you've got, if you, <laughs> nope. if you separate, no, nope. nope. Uh, if you, if you separate, and I think it's just as easy as, as saying you can't, you can't authorize a check and also be the person who controls the physical check itself and the reconciliation. You, you have to have somebody, somebody who's not James Rupert, who's authorizing checks to be to be written. Now, that being right. said, his sneakiness got him around some of that by opening the secret checking account. 
But, you know, so so then on top of that, I, I would have to say there's got to be some sort of just basic financial review, if not a full-blown audit of these organizations on a regular basis, some kind of oversight that's being done. But like you said, it, when you get super small organizations that are volunteer in nature, that are in very, you know, in, in very uh, sparsely populated communities, because, you know, like you said, uh, small nonprofits, small governments, small businesses are all disproportionately affected by fraud because they just yep. don't have the sophistication or the manpower to do these things. So it's like it's easy to say here's some here's some simple internal controls that they could have put in place, but they didn't. But then you also go, you, you know, it's kind of like saying good, good nutrition is very simple. Uh, so why don't poor people get good nutrition? It's like, cause they right. don't have the money to go to whole foods. That's why, right. that's why right. they, they don't have the, the means to do that. So it's like, yeah, people know what they should do, but they can't, but their hands are tied because they just don't have the resources to do what maybe they know they should do. And maybe even what they want to do in terms of those things. Yep. So next, and this is pretty straightforward, the rationalization for this, uh, we, we talked about it before, uh, the the apparent rationalization for this, and I think this is one of the things that weirds you out, Caleb, is the only thing that we had was was his, and this is the quote that he had from his hearing. He said, I had no intention of stealing anything permanently, only using it and replacing it, that I was not sinning that I was not breaking any laws or rules. So he he thought he was doing fine just by going, I'm just going to borrow it for a second and then give the money back. And that was his rationalization. But it, it seems like you want to call bullshit on him for that. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that is true. Okay. I, okay. I guess I don't, I don't. Like I'm, I'm very much, uh, I'm a church and state person when it comes to this. Like your, okay. your, your your religious, you know the 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 basis for your values. If if you're basing, you know, your religious beliefs, kind of inform the behavior that you're out in the world. You know, you don't get to have it both ways. Like you can't just be like, well, the Bible says it wasn't sinning, so it ain't sinning or it ain't wrong. There's still laws on the books that say, hey, you know, you can't do that. You can't take money that doesn't belong to you, even if you even if you intend to pay it back. You can't take it if you don't belong if it doesn't belong to you. So right. I just don't know, like if he wasn't breaking any laws or rules, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't have the, 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 the background in ethics to like pinpoint like the, the school of thought that this kind of lands in, but it's a pretty clear cut case of right and wrong. It's like, if you take things that don't belong to you, then it's wrong. Right. Like, right. And again, well, it, you know, and intent uh, is uh, bullshit. The intent is like his intent <laughs> is bullshit. Well, yeah, but I, I, I want to say that he was, that he honestly, that, that he was self-deluded, that I, I, I believe this. He really thought, like, like, you know, we already covered it. I think he really thought that he was going to be able to replace it. However, he justified that to himself. I think he was, he thought he was really going to give the money back. And that's, that's how he justified it to himself. Even if, so are you, you asking take a me, step back so you, and call are you bullshit me, is on his, Are you asking me, do I think his rationalization is bullshit? Or do I think that just, I mean, I just want to make sure that I understand because rationalization can be bullshit, right? Like, right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just the nature well, well, of because ra- you're rationalizing something that you, you well, you, you rationalize the killing of your grandparents because, well, I didn't want to go to school. Felt like the right thing <laughs> to do at the time was just to kill them. To you know, kill so them or else I'd have to yeah. go to school. Right. Yeah. So you're, so yeah. So there, there's rationale in that. It's completely wrong and yeah, potentially psychotic. But like in this case, also to say that, well, my rationalization is that it wasn't really stealing, just temporarily taking it. Right. Bullshit. Right. Okay. So I just want to understand if like, if I, if I answered your question in the right way. You, you absolutely did because I was not splitting hairs like, like that. I wanted to know all of your opinions about this and I think you laid them out. And then, okay. The third, the third leg of the front is opportunity, rationalization and pressure. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time with pressure because really that's still, that's just the same as red flags is that his lot, lots of debt. That was his pressure. Um, so that, that, and, and really like we, we even talked, we touched on that before. It doesn't seem like there was really a whole lot else that was there. He didn't appear to be a raging alcoholic or a gambler or, you know, or anything like that. Didn't seem like, you know, he, he definitely didn't have shareholders to please or, (laughs) you know, or stock prices that he had to hit. So I think it was just, he, he was bad with money and that's, but that's the other thing in terms of red flags. The most common red flag is living beyond your means that he was just yep. he had this real, you know, exorbitant lifestyle and there was no indication of that. So I think this guy was just super shitty with money and was like, oh, my gosh, I I just spent all of our money on a car that still didn't work or something like that. I don't, on, I don't on, even on know giant cowboy hats. Yeah, something. Yeah, I think he was just crappy with money and he was just a sieve for money. So yeah, so that that was the pressure. The last thing I want to talk about is detection yep. because that's always an interesting thing is is how how was it detected and how does that line up with the research? So uh, so we we broke that down when we were telling about the story is that he he went to his to the new treasurer of the fire department and said, "Hey, please is it's where he was just a dumbass and was like, "Hey, I paid for $26,000 worth of equipment out of my business account. Can you just pay me back for that? But I think ultimately, if you look at it, that ended up being a detection by a tip because he was stupid to the new treasurer and the treasurer then was like, hey, we need to look into this. And the and the new fire department uh, assistant chief was also like, hey, this guy's in bad debt. Is that how you... That's the only way I can like classify the detection was as a tip. Is that, are you with me on that? Or cause the other, the uh, other thing that would, that would line up is by accident because well, yeah. he just other. What, yeah. Or, or other. Yeah. That, which yeah. is one of the, that is one of the categories in the ACFE is other, which you kind yeah, of, it doesn't, it do? doesn't feel like a tip to me just because it was, it was a, it, a kind of a comedy of errors, I suppose, you know, it's yeah. just one of those things where, he let something slip either, you know, consciously or unconsciously. And, um, and the dude's like, well, that's weird. And so they look into it and, and, and yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That doesn't, that that doesn't strike. I don't think they would classify that one as a tip again. I don't know. Okay. ACFE people, they can, they can sure correct us if we're wrong, but um, they sure could. But yeah, that's right. Cause it's not like, cause the treasurer is the guy who investigated it. So it's not like the treasurer gave the tip to himself to go, Hey, Hey me, 
I just heard that this guy was doing something weird. Maybe I need to look into that. So yeah, I guess that's not a tip. So maybe it is other or by so so the ACFE says that six percent of frauds are are detected by other. Um, and yep. yeah, and maybe this is the other, and maybe would, just being a giant dumbass is one of the well, uh, yeah, you know, sub, you, subcategories was, of other. Was one method of detection by accident? Wasn't that one? Yeah, of it is. Yeah, so it 6% might fall. In, it detect- might fall into. It might fall into that then. By it, it might, and again, you just go is, but was it an accident? This guy didn't like accidentally ask to be reimbursed. He just was like, <laughs> that was true. like, yeah. No, so he, he he straight up asked for it's like, uh, can I have twenty six grand? Yeah, can I have twenty six thousand yeah. so, dollars? Yeah. So so it's it's hard it's hard to uh, hard to say exactly <laughs> to categorize this in terms of how it was detected. Just to give some some stats real quick, forty three percent of all frauds are detected by tip. Six percent are uh, are detected by other. Five percent are detected by accident. I think it's funny that five percent of frauds are discovered by accident, and only four percent of frauds are detected by the external auditor, which means that fraudsters are 1% dumber than external auditors are good at detecting fraud. So that one, you know, that, that, that so, particular, that particular fact never gets old for me. Never, n- neither for me. And take no, that out. It's very sad. It's very satisfying. <laughs> it's, it's very, very satisfying. satisfying. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, again, in terms of best practices and what people can do, if a company does not have some sort of way for like a tip hotline or some sort of uh some way for people to communicate their tips to management. You get that. That's just a basic thing that you got to put in there to help, to help detect frauds early enough. So they don't go go on for eight years and become a $200,000 fraud. And they can be, you know, the, the sooner they're found, the less damage that they do. Any other, any other things that stick out to you about this case, you know, and obviously, you know the the big one that we've already that we've already hammered a lot is do background checks. I I think I think you got to do background checks on people. Yeah. Otherwise, you're gonna look you're gonna look horrible when it turns out that you hired a a murderer. Yeah, I mean I think I think in that in the spirit of background checks, I think you know something we talked about before taping was that um, they are kind of an imperfect thing because of there's some thorny issues around it, and because of people that have criminal backgrounds and. Uh, it, it's been difficult. It's been disappo- disproportionately difficult for people of color to get back yep. into the workforce if if they've been right. convicted of a crime. And so, acknowledging kind of the 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 flaws within background checks and 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 being more mindful of how you use them, um, I think is, uh, is is something that everybody should do. But I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think that it is a simple way just to check somebody out. And, mm. and see what's see what's in their past, right? Exactly, and yeah, yeah. So I, I think, and again, with that, I'm a big fan of transparency. And even yep. if that's the whole idea of of you know, if you are an altruistic person and you're like, hey, people can, you know, people can turn a new leaf, people can be rehabilitated, people can, people deserve a second chance. If that's your take on things, it's still, I think, it's still necessary that if you're a person in charge of hiring that you do background checks and that you get that out there and say hey we're hiring this person they murdered their grandparents when they were 17 and we're moving forward anyways so buckle up yeah uh, county of scotland cuz yeah. this is this is the choice we're making this is where we're going we so won't I think, be putting I think them whenever- in charge of the armory and we won't be putting them in charge <laughs> of the money 
Right. Or of the, uh, or of the county nursing home. None of those things are going to be under their purview. So, um, so yeah, so those are the lessons that I learned, Caleb. I think that's, that kind of is an exhaustive look of what, of what we learned, not maybe not of what's possible to learn from this case. Do you have anything else to add before we then wrap things up? Nope. Okay. That's it for this episode. Remember to always run background checks, people. And remember to probably not hire people who murder the grandparents. Hey, Caleb, uh, if people want to find you out there in internet land, uh, how can they do so? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at CNewquist and LinkedIn, uh, my full name, Caleb Newquist. What about you, Greg? Twitter, I'm uh, at Greg Kite. And on LinkedIn, I'm Greg Kite CPA. I'm the bald one with glasses and a beard. So if you find that picture, you found me. You just described most of Portland, Oregon, I think. Right. Well, I have this. There, here's the, here's the, a reality of being a, a, a bald guy with glasses and a beard is we're all indistinguishable. I can't tell us apart from each other. But if you find a Greg Kite with uh, a shaved head and glasses and a beard, that's the right Greg Kite. All right. And I think that's it for this episode. Caleb, you want to read us out? Oh, My Fraud is written by Caleb Newquist and Greg Kite. Our producer is Blake Oliver. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, oh my Oh my fraud! Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit EarmarkCPE.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's EarmarkCPE.com.